Our passage today is from Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 19. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. The pain you shall eat of all the days, in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is God's word for us today. You may be seated. Thank you. So we are continuing our series called Living Stones. We're taking a look at the work of the master builder. All of us are living stones. If you're a follower of Christ, Peter says that in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, that we are being built into uh, a heavenly household, a royal priesthood. And, and that work began... On creation, we looked at that last week when, when God said, let us make man in our image. Originally, you and I, humanity, we are created in God's image. Uh, we are created to love. We are created to bless. We are created to multiply. We are created to bear his image and reflect his glory. And so we're continuing this ser- series, but last week we looked at this and it's like, well, that sounds really good, but why is it so awful today? So a famous question was posed to a very famous journalist by the name of G.K. Chesterton, and it's, it's an apocryphal quote, apocryphal in the sense that no one can find the original source. Okay, so as the story goes, the New York Times or the New York Daily News, one of the two, posed this question to a bunch of journalists and a bunch of philosophers, and the question was, what's wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton wrote back with one very simple statement. Dear sirs, I am. That's it. Now, it's apocryphal in the sense that no one can find the original source in the newspaper. Now, granted, this is 1909, uh, before World War I, so you know, records aren't... You can't just look up on digital. It's, you can't Google it on the internet, and it just pops up. But here is the full quote from one of his books. This is not apocryphal. This is, this is the full quote, what he said. In one sense, in the eternal sense, the thing is plain. The answer to the question, what's wrong, is or should be, I am wrong. Until a man can give that answer, his idealism is only a hobby. But this original sin belongs to all ages and is the business 
of religion. So the question, what's wrong with the world? The question itself, not the answer to the question, but the question itself is universally agreed upon by all people everywhere. I have never met an atheist, a Buddhist, a Muslim, a Hindu, a Christian, a Scientologist. I don't just pick your human being, whatever their worldview and whatever their beliefs. I've never met a human being who looks at humanity and looks at the world and says, pretty much the way it should be. No one does that. Instead, regardless of your political ideology, regardless of your religious upbringing, whether you have one or you don't have one, everyone looks at the world and says something's wrong and something ought to be done to fix it. Would you agree with that? It's universal. Now, what particular is wrong with the world? Well, people are all over the place. Some people would say, the problem with the world is a lack of education or a lack of opportunities. The problem with the world is that the systems and structures of government and society are broken. You hear that a lot, maybe on the, on the left, uh, ideologically. And, but on the right, you hear a lot of people say, no, no, that's not a matter of systems and structures and education. It's a matter of personal responsibility. And as if they're juxtaposed against one another. It has to be one or the other. But underlying all of that, whether you're looking at system structures and sociological society, or whether you're looking at the failures of individuals, is a deeper issue, and G.K. Chesterton here nails it, it's called original sin. Original sin. So we're going to take a look here in the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, why do we sin? Well, that assumes that there is such a thing as sin. Even if you are not a follower of Christ and you don't buy this whole Bible thing, you think this is just a bunch of fables, a bunch of myths that some people wrote a long time ago to control people and get money for them, whatever your, whatever your beliefs about Christianity, I think everyone would agree that you can say, why do people do things they know they ought not to do? Can we all agree that whether or not we are Christians or atheists or whatever we are, that we can say, you know, it, people do things that they know or think they ought not to do. Why? Now, the Bible calls that sin. Why? We're going to look at three things this morning from Genesis chapter 3. Number one, the nature of sin. The nature of sin. Number two, the consequences, the repercussions, the fallout from sin. And then we're going to take a look at the remedy. So the nature the consequences, and the remedy. Would you please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, and as you do, let's go to the Lord and ask Him to reveal Himself through the Scriptures. Father, we thank You for the Word of God. Lord, as we look at our own lives, let alone society, we see the consequences of going our own way. We have broken relationships, broken neighborhoods, disease, nature. Father, everything seems to be against us. God, and we, we come to you humbly this morning. We ask you to teach us. We ask, Lord, that you speak to us through your word. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would tenderize our hearts, that you would make us open to receive your word. Father, that you would bring conviction of sin, an understanding of what sin is. And Lord, help us to see what the remedy of that sin is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Help me to preach and teach in such a way that Christ is honored, that he is glorified, and that he, Father, is worshipped this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Okay, first of all, the nature of sin. Genesis chapter 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Let's stop right there and understand that before there is sin, there is a presupposition. And it begins with a question. Did God actually say? Now, this could be translated, did God really say? And I think in some translations, it might actually say this in the NIV. Did God really say? Now, is that a question? Is it though? Is that a question or is it more of a statement? How many of you use the, the word really, but it's not a question? So, you're, you're a teenager. This, not that this has ever happened to, to the teenagers that are currently here, but your parents, when they were teenagers, this is how it worked. You, you, you're talking with a friend, and your friend wants you to hang out, and, and uh, he says, so what time is this thing going to get over? It's like, oh, it's going to get over about 1230, and then and he says, oh, I can't, my, my curfew, I, I have to be home at 11. To which your friend says, really? Is that a question? It's not a question, it's a proclamation. It's, a, it's, it's formed as a question, did God actually say, he already knows that God has actually said it. What he's doing is he's mocking. Really? The, just the way I say that, the, the, the tone in my, really? When we use that, that phrase, really? It's not a question, it's a, it's a statement, it's a statement mocking the proposition. Or mocking the command. Did God actually say, seriously, Eve? Seriously? He said that? It's not, he's not mining for information. He's seeding, he's seeding that that statement, that proclamation is completely unreasonable. It is completely unreasonable, teenagers, that your parents would demand that you be home by 11 p.m. That is totally unreasonable. If they actually had a brain, they would realize that 2.30 in the morning is completely fine. Everybody else is doing it. You get the idea? That's what's going on here. That's what's going on here. There is a seeded, uh, there's a sense of mocking, the, the seeding of distrust and doubt. And we move on to verse 4 here. The woman says to the serpent, she answers, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you sure, shall surely not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. And then she, so that is true. God did say that, and you can look that up in Genesis 2. But she adds something to the command, which was not stated. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now what this does, her statement here, it gives us an indication that she's falling into the, 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 the she's taking the bait. So originally, it's God says, you shall not eat of this tree for the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. But she, she's added another prohibition. Now you could say, well, that seems reasonable. It's kind of, you know, build, if, if there's a cliff here, if there's a cliff and you don't want your kids to fall off the cliff, you say, don't jump off the cliff. Well, doesn't it make sense to say, don't go within 10 feet of the cliff and so construct a fence? But, but now it seems as if God is even more restrictive than he is. By the way, how many commands were there? One. You, you've seen the meme? You, the memes? The memes? I gave you one command. I gave you one job. You've seen those? Just, just one. Just one. That's it. That's the only prohibition. 
You shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now she's added to it, nor shall you touch it. Now let's take a look at the nature here in verse four and five. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. Now let's just slow down here and think about this. The enemy here is, is really, so there's, there's an initial mocking, there's an initial, that sounds unreasonable. Don't you think that's unreasonable? Now he digs, he goes a little bit deeper here with this. He goes a little bit deeper here. And we need to understand what the nature of the tree and the knowledge of good and evil is. So he says, the serpent says, he doesn't, here's why Eve, you're not, you won't really die, but the reason that God doesn't want you to eat of this tree is because on the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will know you will be like God knowing good and evil. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? Does that mean, does that mean that before Adam and Eve ate of this tree, they were non-intelligent, non-knowing beings? No, no, they're not ignorant. They're not ignorant. They are created in Genesis 1 in the image of God. I would say, I can't prove this empirically, but I would say that the, the unfallen state of man pre-fall is by far more intelligent than, than any man afterwards. They, their minds were not clouded by sin, so they were very intelligent. So it can't mean that. Does it mean that they didn't know the difference between right and wrong? What do you think? Can't mean that because they knew clearly that they ought not to eat of that tree. They knew what right and wrong was. They knew what they were created for. They knew what they weren't created for. They were created for glorifying God. They were not created for, for, uh, for uh, disobeying God. They knew that. They knew the difference between right and wrong. So what does it mean? What does it mean to, to in verse 4, know good and evil? What I believe it means, at least it means this, it possibly means more things, is that what the enemy is saying is, how do you know it's not good if you don't taste of it? You're going to have to, simp- you're just simply relying on his testimony. But if you, until you've experienced, you can't truly know what's good. And what's evil? So you got to taste. You got to taste it. You have to experientially know it. You got to dip your foot in the pool. You got to jump in. How do you know that it's not good if you don't? If you don't savor it, if you don't experience it, if you don't let it just roll around on your tongue, how do you know it's not good? You can't experientially know it. Yes, you can know that it's wrong. Why? Because he said it's wrong. Really? You see where this is going? I had a conversation with a PhD student at the University of Iowa years and years ago, before I was actually the, uh, the teaching pastor here. I was working with college students. It was 1998. This individual helped lead worship. He was a pianist, and he was getting his PhD in psychology, and, and he was sharing with a men's group that I taught that some good friends of his at the University of Iowa, they were in the theater and music department, and they all are hanging out, and they're just talking and, you know, having pizza and, and, and just talking about 
But the subject kind of veered towards human sexuality. And, and, and these individuals that he was with, these friends of his, uh, they said, so are you gay or straight? He says, well, I'm straight. And they said, well, how do you know? And he looked at them and he's like, because I don't desire dudes? To which the follow-up question was, how do you know that you don't? I don't understand the question, is how he responded. Because I have no desire for men. Yeah, but have you tried? No, because I don't desire. Ah, but until you try, you don't know. Do you, you follow the logic? That was 1998. Nothing's changed. It's only more prevalent now. How do you know what gender you are until you maybe experience with the other experiment with the other gender? See, now it's all about dipping your toe in and experiencing. Now, some of you are like, some of you conservatives, most of you probably are, are really resonating and you're liking this and you're thinking, yeah, yeah, the homosexual agenda, that's what they're doing. Just to throw all of you under the bus, maybe almost all of you, heterosexual sin is exactly the same way. Those who don't make it to the marriage bed in a heterosexual encounter but give in much, much earlier have done the exact same thing. I know I ought not, but how do I know that I won't like it until I try it? You see, it it's universal. And, and that's, that's two examples of a very specific type of sin, but all sin is the same way. All sin is the same way. So that's, that's the allurement. It's the, they didn't know evil experientially. They didn't know evil experientially. So now let's take a look at what happens then. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired, to be desired to make one wise. Make one wise in the sense that then you would experientially know what you're missing out on. Okay? So you can't know what you're missing out on until you've jumped in and experienced it, but now... To, so to, to desire to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Just to stop, I don't want to go too far on this, just want to seed your imagination. What the heck was Adam doing during this whole thing? Watching and listening. No comment, just an observation. He's not absent. He's present but he's non-engaged. He's non-engaged. So she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And he ate. Okay, so the nature of sin, the attitude, it's, it, first of all, sin, any action, any, any action, anything that we do, anything that we say, which is a, a, a violation of, of God's commands, is, is an action. But the attitude, the fundamental attitude is a distrust is a distrust of God. He can no longer be trusted. So the idea is that God gives one command, on the day that you eat of this tree, you will surely die. Really? How will you know unless you experience it? So immediately there's a distrust. There's a sense in which, okay, I know what he said. I know he says he's for me. I know he says he's not against me, but the fact that there's a prohibition causes me to doubt whether he has my best interest at heart. So the only way that I'll know is if I experience. 
So this, at its essence, sin at its essence is a distrust of God. I do not trust God. I know God says I ought not, but I think I ought. Okay. I'm speaking to a room full of seasoned and experienced sinners. Am I not? Present company included. Do we have any people who have lied here ever? If you don't raise your hand, you're a liar. So (laughs) raise your hand. We've all lied. How many of us know that we ought not to lie? Well, why do we lie? We know that we ought not to lie, and we know that we shouldn't, but we do because we believe that if I tell the truth, it will not serve me. In other words, we don't believe that obedience is in our best interests. We don't trust the lawgiver. Sexual immorality. We know that we ought not to give ourselves to someone unless we're married to them. And yet so many people, most people do. Why? Because they don't believe that going contrary against God's wishes is in their best interest. They don't, they don't believe that. We, we know that we ought to be generous with our, with our possessions. Do we, or do we? I don't know. I'm assuming we know that we ought to be generous, but when the opportunity comes to be generous, we think that to be generous and be obedient to be Christ-like is going to cut in on our bottom line and we are going to be harmed because of it. We know that we ought to forgive. You know this, this is true. You ought to forgive. And yet, and yet, within, I'm not even talking about unbelievers. I'm talking about people that love Jesus or say they do. Yet, they don't, want to forgive or they're not ready to forgive because they believe that if they forgive, that's not in their best interest because unless that person that's harmed them knows that they haven't been forgiven, there's a good probability they'll be hurt again. So they savor that bitterness. They hold on to that bitterness and they don't forgive knowing that they ought to forgive. We could just keep going. Every example of an ought there is a failure to follow through with the ought. And the, the, the why did you do that? So how many of you as parents have asked the child, why did you do that? Or you asked your husband, why did you do that? Or if you asked your wife, why did you do that? You ask that question and the typical response is, I don't know. Let me give you the reason for the I don't know. Kids, the next time your parents ask you this question, you'll have a ready answer. I don't trust you. I don't believe that you have my best interest at heart. She's like, that sounds just a bit knifeish. Well, it's the truth. That's the reason. That's the reason why sin exists is because we don't trust. We don't trust. And, that, and it plays out in a thousand million applications every single day. Every single day. So that's the nature of sin. That's the nature of sin. So, the consequences, the consequences, generally speaking, can be summed up in one phrase, broken relationships. 
Now that is manifest in three different ways. Broken relationships. The first is with God. So I don't have it on the PowerPoint here, but let's take a look at verse 7. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called God called them to them, to the man, and said, Where are you? By the way, is he looking for information? Is this a Eden-esque hide-and-seek? Now, he knows where he's at. He's not, he's not seeking information. Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I knew I was naked, and I hid myself. I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me uh, the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So that's the, that's the account. What we have here is, is we have a, a rift in the relationship a rift in the relationship between man and God. So in Genesis chapter 1, we looked at this last week, God created man in his own image. Now, the nature of God, he's Trinitarian, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God is love. He's always, the Father's been loving the Son, the Son has been loving the Father, the Father's loved the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's been loving the Father, the Son, both the Father. You get it? There's this community of love, so he creates man in his own image to, to do the same. And, and, and to love God and to be loved by God. And, and there's complete intimacy, complete intimacy. God characteristically walked with, whenever you read walked with in the Bible, it means fellowship, it means communed, it means hung out, it means trusted, it means intimate relationship. So God characteristically walked with Adam strove with him, accompanied him in the garden in the cool of the day. But this time, Adam's nowhere to be found. God says, where are you? Adam says, I'm hiding because I was afraid. Afraid of what? Well, I, I know I'm naked now. I'm, I, there's a vulnerability. I, I feel exposed. And now I no longer trust you because I fear your wrath. I know that I did something I ought not to do. And so I have to hide myself from you because I didn't trust you to begin with because I I thought you were holding out on me. And now that I violated the commands, I'm pretty sure that you're going to crush me. So there's no intimacy. There's no trust. So he didn't trust God before. And that's what got him into sin. And now that he's in sin, he doubly doesn't trust God because now that he knows his sinner, he knows that God hates sin and he's violated the command And now he certainly doesn't have my best interest at heart because now he's going to crush me. So I have to hide. I have to hide. So the the relationship is broken. The relationship is broken. And enter guilt and shame. Guilt and shame. I knew that I was naked. By the way, was he naked before? Yes. What's changed? What's changed is he no longer trusts God. 
See, that's the thing. The beauty about human relationships, when you are in a trustworthy relationship, you can get naked, metaphorically. In other words, you can be real because you know that that person's not going to use the information against you. You don't need to hide. That's what intimacy is supposed to be. You're supposed to have relationships, especially with God, where you can be open and vulnerable and transparent because he already knows everything about you. But Adam now has sewed fig leaves together and wants to cover himself because he doesn't want to be seen. He doesn't want to be seen. Doesn't want Eve to know who he is. Doesn't want God to know who he is. So there's broken relationship, broken relationship with God. You see, before sin, man walked with God in the garden and enjoyed his fellowship. Why? Because, because God was the center of man's universe. But there was a Copernican shift, if you will, a Copernican shift in terms of, of the focus of man. You see, before the fall, God was the center of everything, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Man saw that his existence was dependent upon that. Man saw that his greatest joy was the glory of God, and his goodness was found in glorifying God. His joy was found in glorifying God. But then a Copernican shift came around and man became the measure of all things. Man became the center of all things in order to know good and evil. He had to decide for himself. And now, now man has declared himself autonomous. The word autonomous, it's a compound word. Auto means self. Nomos means law, self-law. The lawgiver was banished and man became as a law unto himself. I will be the determiner of right and wrong. I will be the determiner of good and evil. I will be the judge. D.A. Carson refers to this as the de-godding of God. There is only one lawgiver. There is only one creator. But man, in a sense, metaphorically speaking, banishes God from his order and declares himself to be the center of the universe. That's, that's the nature of the relationship, or at least it has been since Genesis 3. So man hides shame, guilt, fear, and blame. So God comes to Adam, why did you eat of the tree? What's Adam's response? She did it. The woman, oh, but this is so good. The woman you gave me. So whose fault is this ultimately? This is God's fault. And then Eve, why did you do this? The serpent that you put in the garden deceived me. So whose fault is this? It's God's fault. This is exactly how we... Now, let's get naked, shall we? Married couples, how many of you, when you get into a fight because you've done something wrong manage to find a way to blame it on your spouse. Any of you? Let's be honest. Hands high. Hands high. The people that didn't raise your hand, you're not married or you're liars. So there you go. We've all done it. We call it gaslighting. Yes. We, we know what we're doing. We manipulate the truth in such a way that we make it feel like it's the other person's fault when, and they may own a little bit of it, but come on. Really? See, nothing's changed. Thousands and thousands. And this is why we do what we do. This is why we act the way we act. This is why we think the way we think. So consequences of God, relationship is broken. 
but with one another. That there's the fallout is dramatic. It's dra- it's drastic. The fallout with one another. Just jump ahead to Genesis chapter three, verse sixteen. Uh, Verse 16, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, we could spend a whole sermon series on just this one verse, but suffice it to say that the entrance of sin into humanity is the entrance entrance of broken relationships with one another. Before Adam and Eve beheld one another. They were bone of bone, flesh of flesh. They were one flesh. The two became one flesh. They were naked and they were unashamed. Now they were naked and they were shamed and they had made, they made clothing to, to, to conceal themselves from one another and the, the blame shifting immediately, the woman you put in the garden, the serpent and so forth. And now, now God gives them a, a clue of, of the way it's going to be. In this cryptic statement, he says, uh, your desire shall be for your husband... Now, that word for, it's a preposition. It can be translated your, any number of ways in, in, uh, from Hebrew to English. It's a preposition. It could be an in, against, uh, for, beside. Um, and so how, how do the translators translate it? Context? Context? I'll tell you what this doesn't mean. Your desire shall be for your husband. It doesn't mean that the ladies are going to think you're hot, guys. That's not what it means. Not at all. Now, some of you think that because you come out of the shower and you look at your wife, you're like, and she's like, she's not appealed. It's not, guys, that's not how women think, right? Her her desire is going to be for her husband. This is often translated against. She's going, her desire for her husband, she's going to, she's going to oppose you. Not that any of you have ever experienced that in marriage. But that's the way it is. Oh, but it gets worse because look at the next part of that verse in 16. Way worse. Oh, but don't worry because he's going to rule over you. There's an encouraging statement, said no one ever since the fall. Now, you remember back in last week when we looked at God saying, I want you to be fruitful, I want you to multiply, and I want you to have dominion and rule over the earth. You remember that? From last week, those of you who are here, how many of you, when you heard that from Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, you just kind of cringed a little bit because you thought, that doesn't sound right, this whole dominion and ruling. Anybody? You feel that vibe? Why? Because you know that individual human beings or corporate human beings, when they rule and have dominion, it always means oppression. And you're right, it does. Because... That's what we're like now. It wasn't like that before Genesis 3, but here's what God is saying. Ladies, you're going to want to, your, your desire is going to be for your husband, but he's going to rule over you. He's going to be a jerk. And there's just going to be this, this there's just going to be oppression. There's going to be injustice. And it's not just within the, in the, in the household. There's only two people right now. So this He's going to rule over you. Your desire is for, you can, you can, that spreads out. Teenagers, your, your desire is going to be for your parents, but they're going to rule over you. Labor, your desire is going to be for the management, but they're going to rule over you. You you see the picture? This is how human beings relate now. There's a, there's a constant sense in which before the fall, 
before the fall, man's objective was to be fruitful, multiply, and to seek the good of others. And to, yes, subdue and have dominion. But subduing and having dominion without sin means that I am going to manipulate my environment for the betterment of others and for the glory of God. Until Genesis 3, and then it's all about manipulation for something else. Oh, there's manipulation, but it's not manipulating the environment or manipulating my circumstances for the betterment of others. It's about manipulating the environment and manipulating others for my own personal environment because there's been a Copernican revolution and I am the center of the universe. You see how that works? That's why our relationships are broken. And then with creation, verse 17 and 19 through 19. And to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you and you shall eat of the plants of the field. For by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it, you were taken and for dust, you are dust and to dust, you shall return. Whereas before... Work, by the way, God, man was commanded to, to work before the fall. Work is, is, is a vocation, doing something with your hands, doing something with your life, is God glorifying and God honoring. It's not a product of the fall. But because of the fall, everything that we do, which, which looks like work, is hard. It seems to fight against us. That's why mechanics have bloody knuckles. Tools slip. That's why farmers are constantly looking at the weather because it's either too dry or too wet. That's why people in ministry can't do anything right because they'll either go too far this way or too far that way. It's, it's just life is hard. Work is hard. To, whatever your occupation is, is it hard? Yeah, it's hard. There's always hard aspects to it. it nothing, nothing cooperates. Entropy. Entropy. The, the law of disorder that all things wind down and break and fall apart. It's just the rule of the universe. It's the rule of the universe. It's universal. These three things. With God, with one another, with creation. It's absolutely universal. This is independent of your worldview. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian. It does not matter. Some of you are like, well, I'm an atheist. Well, that's fine. That's fine. But you have a broken relationship with God because you've declared that he doesn't exist and you are the center of the universe. And I'm going to guess that you have problems with relationships with other people too. That doesn't mean that people who are not believers can't have meaningful relationships that are enjoyable to them, but it does mean that the relationships are not what they could be, and there's always something fighting against them, fighting against one another. And regardless of your worldview, work is hard. Creation is hard. We all wind down. We all die. We all get sick. We all get sick. And we all die. So what's the remedy? What's the remedy? Skipped over this verse in verse 15. God speaks to the serpent. serpent, He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring, plural, 
and her offspring, singular. He shall bruise your head. That is the future offspring of Eve. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is a right in the... What is this? Now, when you read this for the first time, when you read this for the first time, you're thinking, what is this referring to? This is, refer, this is what, what theologians refer to as a proto-evangel, proto-gospel. It's a pre-gospel. It's a, it's a look into the future of the one who's going to come that's going to undo the fall. Paul articulates it this way in Romans chapter 5. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, that is Adam, much more had the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment followed one trespass, brought brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Now, We've leapt thousands and thousands of years into the future from Genesis 3.15. But here's what Paul is doing. He's putting, his, he's putting this in a nice package for us. and saying, listen, the descendant of Eve that's going to crush the serpent's head is Jesus Christ. Man was driven from the garden. And an angel, a cherub with a, with a flaming sword, was put in front of Eden to guard the tree of life so that man would never come back and eat it. You remember Peter? What does he call, what does he call us? Exiles? Adam and Eve are exiles. Every human being has been exiled. We're wanderers. And the only way back home is to pass under the sword. The only way back into Eden is to pass under the sword. The first Adam was banished from the garden and the second Adam prayed in the garden. Father, Take this cup from me, but not my will, but thine be done. What's he saying? He knows that to go forward, he must pass under the sword of his father's judgment. Not for his own sin, but my sin and your sin. For the sin of each and every one of us, man, woman, of child, declaring ourselves to be the center of our own universe and believing that the world should revolve around our wishes for our, for our edification. For our declaration of independence. For we hold these truths to be self-evidence. That I have the right to determine what is good for me in my own eyes. And I will pursue it so that I might be happy. And in the pursuit of our own happiness we have given credence to the lie that our good and righteous Heavenly Father does not have our well-being at heart. And the wages of sin is death, and all of sin, and fallen short of the glory of God. But the second Adam, Jesus, the true and better Adam, he crushed the serpent's head, and his heel was bruised as he hung upon that cross, He himself died, but he rose again and conquered death. So the remedy for sin 
is not to try harder to be good. The remedy for sin is to accept the free gift of the second Adam, which is Jesus Christ. So I would encourage you, encourage you today, place your faith in Jesus. Dispense with the fig leaves and allow Christ to be your righteousness. Allow Christ to be your merit, your good. Allow your sin to be taken to the cross by him. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Jesus, you are good. You are merciful. And Lord, we're reluctant to trust. Lord, I pray that you would give faith to all those here this morning, that we might trust you for forgiveness of sins, that we might trust you for for salvation, and Lord, that you would give us the gift of your spirit and help us to trust you with the everyday decisions of life. Remind us again that you are a good, good father and that you have our good at heart. And Father, I just pray that you would, that you would, you would cause us to live lives which are righteous, which bring you glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. God bless, go in grace, and we will see you next week.